0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph and I'm Sham. Today's story is a twisted web of deception, greed, violence, and psychological torture. One man had everyone so charmed that his friends, family, and even the FBI refused to believe he could possibly be involved when people around him mysteriously started going missing. But even he was no match for the love fathers have for their daughters. Lee Kimball was born September 21, 1966, to Barb and Virgil Kimball. He grew up on his family's ranch in Lafayette, Colorado. He wasn't one of the popular kids, being a little on the quiet side around his peers, but the local cops already knew Scott was going to be trouble. When he was 10 years old, he got a hold of one of his dad's guns and was shooting out of his house trying to hit his neighbors' houses. When Scott was in high school, his parents got a divorce, and he and his brother followed their dad to Montana. Even in Montana, Scott continued to get into trouble. Then one day, while on a hunting trip with his brother, Scott put the barrel of a rifle against his forehead and pulled the trigger. The bullet glanced off his skull, tearing a hole in his forehead. He remained in critical condition for several days and remains visibly scarred to this day. Scott's cousin later said he was never the same after that suicide attempt. It's like he lost his conscience. After he recovered from the failed attempt, he came clean about his reasons. For most of his childhood, he and another neighborhood boy had been sexually molested by the man living next door to Scott's grandmother for years. Theodore Payton would take these boys to his cabin by the lake about an hour away from where they lived for fishing trips and sexually abuse them. Scott finally escaped when he was 14 by moving to Montana with his dad, but he couldn't escape the damage already done. Scott testified against Theodore in court, and in 1996, he was sentenced to seven years in prison for sexually assaulting the two boys a decade earlier.
1: Well, we have talked about damage to the frontal lobe before on this show. It controls some major functions like anticipation, goal selection, planning, initiation, sequencing, monitoring, and self-correction. It can really change a person, and we have seen it in many of the serial killers or people that just supposedly snapped.
0: Exactly. We see it time after time. It's like they lose all empathy after damage to their frontal lobe.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if he made some terrible judgment calls after an injury like that.
0: In his 20s, Scott discovered a talent for conning people out of their money and spent his early adulthood scamming people across the Western United States. During this time, he got married and had two sons, but the marriage didn't last, and before he turned 30, he was divorced. His criminal activity caught up with him, and he spent his early 30s in jail for check fraud. Scott made the best of prison by making up stories to impress his fellow inmates. He bragged that he was a hitman and liked to be called Hannibal, you know, like the serial killer in those movies. But ever the con man, he started forming a plan to earn himself an early release. His cellmate, Stephen Ennis, was an ecstasy dealer, and Scott formed a friendship with the man. He told Scott about the witnesses the prosecutors were gathering to testify against him, and was resigned to the fact that he wouldn't be getting out of jail for a long time. Scott was intrigued by the pictures on their wall of Stephen's very attractive girlfriend. Stephen told Scott all about his girlfriend, Jennifer Markham. Scott concocted a plan to use this information to get himself out of prison. He contacted the FBI and told them his cellmate had told him about a murder-for-hire plot that he and his girlfriend were planning. He said they were planning to kill one of the witnesses scheduled to testify against Stephen. In 2002, the FBI fell for this made-up story and released Scott to work for them as a paid informant. They tasked Scott with getting close to Jennifer to earn her trust and learn more about the murder plot. He moved back in with his mother in Lafayette, Colorado to be conveniently located near his target.
1: So this man not only snitched on someone who confided in him, but he made up an elaborate lie about what they actually discussed. He must have been very persuasive for the FBI to not only let him out, but allowed him to work for them.
0: Right? He couldn't just take his get-out-of-free jail card. He wanted the FBI to pay him for all of his made-up information.
1: (laughs) Seriously. So what gives? There's no way that he took advantage of his newfound freedom to turn his life around. I mean, if he did, we wouldn't be talking about him. He was tasked with getting close to Jennifer. So let's talk about her.
0: Jennifer Lynn Markham was born June 15, 1977 in Aurora, Colorado, where her father served in the Air Force. Her parents, Bob and Mary, divorced when she was a toddler and her mother moved her to Springfield, Illinois. Jennifer was a happy-go-lucky kind of girl, always laughing and cracking jokes. She loved sports, particularly volleyball, and enjoyed spending her time with her friends shopping and dancing. By 17, Jennifer had her own apartment and a job at a fast food place determined to make it on her own. At 20 years old, she fell in love and married Clarence Hoyle, and together they moved to Colorado Springs so he could join the army there. The marriage didn't last long, and shortly after it ended, she got pregnant by a man named Jeff Wiggins, and they had a son named Austin. Jennifer was very outgoing and had a lot of friends, but she always remembered to keep in touch with her friends and family back home in Illinois. In 1999, Jennifer started working as a stripper at Shotgun Willie's trying to build a better life for her son. It was during this time that she met Steven and they fell madly in love. She gushed to her parents about how he was the one and once they could save up enough money they were going to fulfill their dream of opening a coffee shop together. But then Stephen got arrested for dealing, and Jennifer went back to struggling to survive until he was released. For a time, Jennifer was sleeping on her friend's couch, and her son was living with his dad until she could get back on her feet. This was when Scott Kimball walked into Jennifer's life. In February 2003, he contacted Jennifer, telling her that he was a friend of Stephen, and he was going to help her start that coffee shop and finally build that life for herself and her son. Jennifer was skeptical and went to visit Stephen in prison. She asked him if she could really trust the Scott guy, and Stephen assured her that she could. 25-year-old Jennifer took Scott up on his offer and immediately disappeared.
1: Why would Stephen tell her to trust Scott? He must have been threatened into telling her that, because he clearly cared for her. I mean, he had a picture of her up on his wall. I don't understand that part
0: honestly i think scott was so convincing that he actually had stephen believing that he was there to help them out i don't think stephen knew how scott got out of prison or that he was an informant or anything he had everyone fooled
1: that is a good theory okay so now jennifer is missing was this the first of many or what actually jennifer wasn't
0: the first to mysteriously disappear after an encounter with scott In January of 2003, a 24-year-old woman from Centennial, Colorado named Leanne Emery was put in touch with Scott by her boyfriend, who was also in the same prison. Leanne Emery was born in 1978 to Howard and Darlene Emery. Leanne was always a leader and felt the need to always be helping people and animals wherever she could. She was a straight-A student and graduated early from high school. At 17, she was the youngest member of the honor roll sorority at her college. She had everything going for her, but life had other plans. Her mother got very sick, and she herself was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, leading her to drop out of college. Shortly after, she lost her job as a veterinarian assistant and ended up in an abusive marriage. Leanne loved the outdoors, camping, hiking, and caving, And that is what really got her through her difficult times. In 2002, she left her husband after two years of abuse and began a relationship with a prisoner named Stephen Hawley. Every weekend, Leanne spent exploring caves with her friends. January 16th of 2003, her parents watched her pack her car for another caving expedition. But this time she was going for a couple weeks in Mexico. Howard and Darlene were happy Leanne seemed to be moving on with her life, and after years of struggles, she finally seemed okay. A couple hours after pulling out of her parents' driveway, Leanne called her sister Michelle and cryptically told her, if anything happens to me, I want you to know that I love you. Her sister was confused, but didn't think much of it at the time. About a week later, Leanne called her parents and told them that she would be staying in Mexico longer than expected. They told her to have fun and be safe.
1: Okay, what is up with this prison and why is everyone playing matchmaker with Scott and their girlfriends? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's totally weird. This one is tough for me, though. If she was suffering from bipolar disorder and unmedicated, that could open up a lot of possibilities as to why she told her sister that. Was she paranoid or did she know she was in actual danger?
0: From what her parents said, she was being treated for her bipolar disorder and had it under control. That doesn't mean someone else wasn't convincing her that she was in danger, though.
1: So what happened to her?
0: Well, about a week later, Howard and Darlene got a call from a Moab, Utah sheriff deputy. Leanne's car had been found abandoned off a dirt road in the Moab desert near the Book Cliffs. Her father was in shock. He felt sick to his stomach. A week ago, he had talked to her about staying longer in Mexico. What was her car doing in Utah? Leanne's caving gear and purse were found in the car, but her credit cards were missing. The sheriff's deputy noticed one set of footprints leading from the driver's side door to a set of tire tracks. It appeared Leanne had parked her car and someone else had met her there to pick her up. Howard immediately tried to file a missing persons report, but the Colorado police told him there wouldn't be an investigation. They told this worried father that his daughter was an adult and didn't need his permission to run away from her life. He insisted she wouldn't run away, that something must be wrong. The officer responded that they will investigate when he finds her body.
1: Parents know their children, okay? (laughs) Even if they're grown adults, if they say something isn't right and they're clearly in a state of panic, listen to them.
0: This drives me nuts. Adults go missing and need help too. How heartless must that person have had to been to say this to a worried father?
1: Right, as a parent, I'm not gonna sit around and wait for someone to find the body of my child when I can put in the effort to find them alive and well.
0: Exactly. Howard wasn't gonna sit by and do nothing either. He started his own investigation into the two weeks since Leanne had left for her trip. He contacted the credit card company and recreated her trail. He quickly discovered that she had never gone to Mexico at all. For 10 days, she had traveled across the western United States, Utah, Wyoming, Oregon, Nevada, Washington, then back to Colorado. She was all over the place, and almost all of the thousands of dollars of charges were for gas. Through their family phone plan records, he discovered that the call she had made to him was actually placed in Colorado. Why had she lied to him about being in Mexico when she had actually been back in their home state? He refused to believe she would have done this on her own and believed someone must have been threatening her. Next, he started digging into her computer. He came across some emails she had sent to her cousin a few days before she left indicating that she was in some kind of danger these emails talked about a man called hannibal and were very troubling to howard in these emails she said that this hannibal person was going to protect her and she had to trust him but that he was a very dangerous man and would kill her if he knew that she was talking to someone about him howard also found a letter from leanne's boyfriend stephen telling her that she was in terrible danger and needed to contact the fbi immediately he went to visit Stephen in prison and found out that hannibal is a former inmate working with the fbi that Stephen had put in touch with leanne Stephen insisted that hannibal would never hurt leanne and he refused to tell howard that hannibal was really scott kimball howard took all of this information to the investigators hoping it would be enough to open a missing persons case but they dismissed it as fiction and refused to even look into it. He had one last glimmer of hope when a few days after her car was found, there was a new charge on her credit card in California. He was able to track down the person who had used her card, but the prostitute that had used it told him that it was given to her as payment for sexual favors and she wasn't able to give him the name of her client. He was back to a dead end with no idea what to do next.
1: Okay, this is a lot to unpack. So Stephen told Leanne to befriend Hannibal, a.k.a. Scott, for some unknown reason when she last spoke to him. Then he wrote her a letter telling her the complete opposite. What was the difference between telling her the truth the first time over writing about it later?
0: Well, okay, you have to remember that Scott is most likely telling everyone that he works for the FBI now. So when Stephen wrote and told Leanne to contact the FBI, he was likely telling her to contact Scott. From what I found, it seems like Scott had convinced Stephen and Leanne that someone was out to get Leanne. He fueled her paranoia and led her all over the United States as if they were running from someone.
1: Oh, okay. So all of this going on and no one is going to do anything except the father? That's right.
0: Meanwhile, Scott had entered into a new relationship with a divorced mother named Lori McLeod. They met while they were both playing poker at a local casino. The first thing Lori noticed about Scott was how he doted on his elderly mom, wheeling her around in her wheelchair. She thought he seemed sweet, and he couldn't keep his eyes off of her. When he asked her for her number, she jokingly asked, you're not a criminal or something, are you? Scott laughed and said, of course not, I'm an FBI agent. Their first date was on Valentine's Day, and Scott was a perfect gentleman. He opened doors for her, wined and dined her, and really turned on the charm. Lori assumed Scott was rich because he always paid for everything and was frequently buying her gifts. He was so romantic, it didn't take long for Lori to fall head over heels in love. Their relationship moved quickly, and pretty soon Scott and Lori had moved in together. But Lori was a package deal. Her 19-year-old daughter, Casey, lived with her as well. Lori had always bragged that Casey had been the absolute easiest kid. She was always bright, bubbly, and fun. She was happy, easy to get along with, and eager to please. When she was little, she would just break out in song and dance for no reason other than to make people smile. Casey was Lori and her husband Rob's only child, and they sheltered her and tried to protect her as much as possible. That became much harder after Lori and Rob divorced and Casey really struggled with the end of her parents' marriage. When Casey entered high school, she started rebelling. She started smoking and skipping school. Lori decided the best course of action was some space and sent Casey to live in Arizona with her aunt. In 2001, now 17-year-old Casey was introduced to harder drugs by her roommate. After a couple months of frequent drug use, her best friend Tabitha Morton called Casey's parents out of concern and told them about the drugs and that Casey needed help. Lori immediately moved Casey home to Colorado to live with her. Casey and Scott seemed to get along really well. She thought he was charming, smart, and funny, and really good to her mom. By the time Scott moved in with them, Casey seemed to be getting herself back on track, with new friends and a steady job at Subway. At least, that's what Lori thought. Until that August, when Scott found a vial of white powdery substance that he told Lori was evidence of Casey using again. They confronted Casey, but she swore it wasn't hers, and even begged her mom to do a drug test on her to prove it. Lori didn't believe her and threatened to turn her into the police.
1: Mm, sounds like a setup to me.
0: Absolutely. She even offered to take a drug test. Why would she do that if she had started using again?
1: Trust your kids, damn it. If they say they didn't do something, believe them. You are their biggest cheerleaders.
0: Absolutely. Devastated by her mom's lack of trust and out of fear of being arrested, Casey took off on her bike into the dark of the night. Lori asked Scott to go find her while she called Rob to fill him in. At first, Rob was angry. This wasn't the first time Casey had run away. But he was mostly worried about his daughter scott went driving around and found casey still very upset he paid for a motel room for her and her boyfriend to stay in until things cooled off he went home and assured laurie that casey was okay but needed some space and he had paid for a room for her to stay at so that at least they knew where she was the next morning casey called her mom and told her she was going to stay at the motel for a few days but they would talk soon and everything was going to be okay. A couple days later, on August 23rd, Scott was gone on one of his impromptu camping trips when Casey's boyfriend knocked on Lori's door asking if Casey was there. He told Lori that Casey didn't come back to the motel after work. Together, they called Casey's work and discovered that she hadn't shown up for work at all. Casey's boyfriend said that didn't make any sense. Scott had picked Casey up that morning to give her a ride to work. Laurie immediately tried to file a missing persons report, but was told that without blood evidence of foul play, Casey was an adult who could disappear if she pleased.
1: Why wouldn't she immediately call Scott to ask him what's up? She's wasting so much time at this point by not going straight to the source.
0: He had taken off on a last-minute camping trip without telling her where he was going, and he most likely didn't have cell service. She couldn't get a hold of him until he decided to come home.
1: Okay, well that makes sense, but it's still super suspicious.
0: When Scott returned home and Lori told him that Casey was missing, he reminded her that he worked for the FBI and he was sure his contacts could help find her. Right away, he turned up some leads, but still didn't find Casey. A week after she disappeared, Lori found her necklace hanging on her bedroom doorknob and was relieved to know that Casey had been there when no one else had been home. A few weeks later, Scott told Lori that a neighbor had seen Casey at the house with her boyfriend, so she was safe but didn't want to be found right now. This broke Lori's heart, but at least she knew Casey was safe. Lori was so grateful to Scott for all he had done to find Casey, that she didn't argue when he suggested they get married. Only a couple months after Casey vanished, Lori and Scott were married in a small courthouse ceremony. For their honeymoon, he took her camping in the Roosevelt National Forest.
1: Who the hell gets married when your child is missing? I need to see my entire child in person before I believe what anybody has to say.
0: Right? Unless Scott convinced her that it would help them find Casey somehow, I just don't understand.
1: So was Casey just labeled as a runaway rebel daughter at this point? Basically, yeah.
0: Life went on for Scott and Lori with no word from Casey. Scott's sons would visit from time to time, and Lori really liked the boys. They offered a needed distraction. In the summer of 2004, Scott and his 10-year-old son Justin were out in the backyard when a heavy metal beam fell on the boy. When Justin woke up in the hospital, he told the doctors a horrifying story. When his dad was driving him to the hospital, Scott opened the passenger door and pushed his son out of the car while speeding down the empty highway. The doctors reported the story to the police, but with the severe head injury that he had sustained, no one was sure if it had really happened. Justin was going to be okay, so they sent him home. Scott's uncle Terry moved from Georgia into Lori and Scott's house to help while they were focusing on Justin. Terry was 60 years old and had just finalized his divorce. He was an odd guy and kind of gave Lori the creeps, but he was family. He had come into a few thousand dollars from the divorce and carried the cash around with him in a suitcase at all times. On September 1st, 2004, only a week after he arrived, he left and never came back. Scott told Lori it was the craziest thing. Terry had won the lottery and run off to Mexico with a stripper.
1: How many times is this guy going to give her a story and she just runs with it?
0: Right? I'm sorry, but at some point, she just became unwilling to see what was right in front of her.
1: Please tell me someone was out there looking for these women in Uncle Terry. Start back at the beginning with who was looking for Jennifer.
0: I will, but we'll be right back with the investigation of these disappearances after this short break. Okay, in 2004, after a year of tortured wandering... Jennifer's dad, Bob, asked a cop friend to run Jennifer's name through the database. The search must have flagged something because right away, Bob received a call from the FBI. They told him that Jennifer's car had been found abandoned at the Denver International Airport a year ago, and an informant had told them that Jennifer had last been seen with a suitcase headed to the airport for a flight to New York. Despite no record of Jennifer ever boarding a flight, no real investigation had taken place. Bob pushed hard for more information, so Agent Carl Schloff arranged a meeting between his informant and Jennifer's parents. They weren't allowed to know the informant's name, but they were told he shared a jail cell with Jennifer's boyfriend back in 2002. When Scott showed up, he told a very different story than the one the FBI had given. He told Bob and Mary that Jennifer had been murdered by one of her boyfriend's drug associates and he had seen a picture of her dead body. He went into details that immediately made her parents suspicious. He told them that she had been tied up and strangled from behind and that she put up quite a fight. He told them he knew exactly where her body was and offered to take them up into the mountains to show them himself. They had a bad feeling about this informant, and there was no way they were going anywhere with him. Before they left the park, they sneaked a picture of his license plate, and with the help of that cop friend, learned his real name.
1: Oh hell no, that was way too detailed for him to not be the killer. I'd understand if he found her body afterwards and had a way to connect her murder to a real suspect, but how would you know she put up a fight? This would make me sick to my stomach. Her killer is likely looking these poor parents in the eyes and just laying out how he took her life. How crazy is this
0: whole thing? The FBI finds her car and has an informant supposedly with information about her, and no one contacts her family for over a year?
1: This is insane! It's literally crazy. What did they do next?
0: Well, the next day, Mary called Scott and recorded their conversation, hoping he would let something slip. She begged him to tell her where they could find Jennifer's body, but Scott got angry and told her that they had their chance and they didn't take it and hung up on her. Bob and Mary were convinced that Scott had killed Jennifer and they took their suspicions to agent Carl. He brushed them off and defended his informant telling them he trusted Scott completely. Agent Carl gave them the impression that Scott's story made sense because of Jennifer's high risk lifestyle. It was clear that he had set up that meeting hoping they would be so disappointed with how she was living that they would write her off and move on. But her parents loved her no matter what, and they didn't care what kind of lifestyle she had been living. They wanted her back. Bob wasn't about to drop it and forget about his daughter. He paid to have a billboard put up outside the strip club where she had worked offering a $20,000 reward for information and included in large letters the question, Jennifer, where are you? In June 2006, Casey's dad read an article about the billboard Bob had put up for his missing daughter and was shocked to read that Scott Kimball was the last known person to see her alive. Rob had been suspicious of Scott from the beginning, and found the article about Jennifer while searching for information about Scott. His involvement in another missing woman's case confirmed his suspicions. He called Bob and told him all about Scott's connection to Casey's disappearance. Both fathers had conducted their own investigations into their missing daughters, so they met up to compare notes.
1: Usually it's the mamas, but let me tell you, these dads did not come to play, okay?
0: (laughs) People always talk about daddy's girls, you know? But that love goes both ways. Their little girls are missing, and they won't stop until they find them.
1: So tell me what the real investigators did next.
0: So Bob and Rob's next step was to pay a visit to Rob's ex-wife, now Scott's current wife, Lori. She actually wasn't shocked by their accusations. She had been having her own suspicions about Scott, but he had a way of making her feel crazy. He gaslighted her into thinking whenever he wouldn't come home at night or disappeared for random weekends, he was probably just cheating on her. She opened up to them about how the weekend Casey went missing, Scott went on a spur-of-the-moment camping trip without telling her where he was going. Bob then asked if she knew anyone else who mysteriously went missing after spending time with Scott. A terrifying light bulb went off for Lori with that question. She told them everything she knew about Uncle Terry. These two determined fathers took everything they had compiled to the FBI. They marched into the Denver FBI office and demanded an investigation. Rob threw a challenge at the new FBI supervisor. He said, you can be a hero and look into this, or you can be a zero and ignore it, and we'll take it to the media instead. They had his attention.
1: Damn. It was the hero or zero for me. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So did it work?
0: Well, what they didn't know was that Detective Gary Thatcher of the Lafayette Police had already been investigating Scott in relation to a check fraud case. In 2005, Scott had siphoned off more than $50,000 from an eye specialist who shared office space with Scott's mother. The more Detective Gary learned about Scott, the more he believed there was a lot more to this guy's crimes than the check fraud. Detective Gary teamed up with local prosecutor Katerina Booth to dig deeper into Scott's potential crimes. When they learned of the 2004 accident involving his 10-year-old son Justin and the story of Scott pushing him out of a moving car on the way to the hospital, the case became something of an obsession for them both. Prosecutor Katerina dug up a $50,000 life insurance policy Scott had taken out on his son and believed she was starting to understand his motives. He would literally do anything for money. They had enough to arrest Scott on fraud charges, but they now wanted to get him on attempted murder of his son as well. Plus, Scott had gotten wind of their check fraud investigation and was on the run. Detective Gary paid a visit to Scott's wife, Lori, to see if she could provide any information. She was confused by the fraud accusations and explained that Scott was an FBI agent, so maybe it was just a misunderstanding. But deep down, she didn't believe that herself, and decided to fill Detective Gary in on all of the disappearances of Casey, Jennifer, and Uncle Terry. Detective Gary was shocked when she told him that Scott was an FBI agent. A guy with Scott's extensive criminal history couldn't possibly work for the FBI. He called the FBI to confirm and was further surprised to learn that while Scott wasn't an agent, he did in fact work for the FBI as a paid informant.
1: Those life insurance policies are always getting the best of people. I'm just glad they're finally putting the pieces together.
0: One piece at a time, years later, but better than nothing. Right. (laughs)
1: At what point does the FBI actually step up since it's their informant? Just before
0: Thanksgiving in 2006, Agent Jonathan Grusing was asked to the FBI supervisor's office. He told Agent John that the fathers of the two missing girls seemed to think one of their informants had something to do with their disappearances and he needed to get to the bottom of it. Agent John and Detective Gary teamed up to bring this guy down. Between them, they now suspected Scott of fraud, attempted murder, and linked him to at least three missing people. Conjurers, we have so much more to tell you about this case. The more we researched, the more twisted the web Scott Kimball weaved got. Casey, Leanne, Jennifer, Terry, and their loved ones deserve to know what happened to them. It took years for law enforcement to finally start looking for them but their families never stopped. There was too much important information that you absolutely need to know about this case to fit it all into one episode. Stay tuned next week for the part two conclusion of The Con Man Killer.
1: The Missing Person Support Center is a national nonprofit organization whose goals is to educate the families, public, and law enforcement through training and awareness, as well as methods of prevention. They strive to provide strong and solid assistance to families whose loved ones have gone missing and they are forced to navigate through the system during one of the most tragic times in their lives. They also try to provide a voice for the unidentified in an effort to return them to their loved ones. To get involved, learn more, or simply look through the missing persons flyers, visit www.mpsupportcenter.org or call 636-236-3730.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at CrimeAndConjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stephen Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. If you like our podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even better, leave us a voicemail, which just might get featured on the show. You can find the link on our website.
1: Steph, what is our Conjure Tip of the Week?
0: Today, I want to talk about Carnelian. This stone restores vitality and motivation and stimulates creativity. It also gives courage, promotes positive life choices, dispels apathy, and motivates for success. Carnelian is useful for overcoming any form of abuse by helping you trust yourself and your instincts. This stone improves analytic abilities and clarifies perception. This stone will help motivate and push you to keep going even when the task feels hopeless.
1: At one point, you may have crossed paths with somebody who is doubting their instinct. Maybe they're surrounded by toxic people that convince them they're crazy and they need a little motivation. Leave these stones in their home or gift one to them. Anything helps. We'll be back next week with part two of this episode. Stay tuned. Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers.